I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Today's episode is certainly one of my most favorite conversations I've had to date on the What Got You There podcast. I sit down with Apollo Ono, and Apollo is America's most decorated winter Olympian of all time. He's an author, speaker, and he's also on a life mission to just like unleash the power and potential in others. So Apollo began speed skating uh, at the age of 14 and where he, uh, he actually won the, the U.S. championship. And since that date, he just went on to have one of the most storied careers over the next decade, uh, essentially becoming a, a kid prodigy and then turning into a, uh, an Olympian and earning eight Olympic medals, which is just mind boggling. And in this conversation, we talk about so much. We talk about the inner game, the inner work, the mindsets, the beliefs you need facing pain, running headfirst into chaos and dealing with that? How, how do you develop the emotional control? And what does that look like of the elite, elite, elite? And so Apollo is someone I just deeply respect. Um, I learned so much from, and I think this conversation is going to be the embodiment of what it takes to be truly elite in whatever it is you're going after in life. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm launching a new podcast called Momentum Minutes. Now, don't worry, what got you there isn't going anywhere. But after talking to countless listeners, the number one thing I kept hearing is you want more wisdom in less time. And that's why I'm launching the Momentum Minutes podcast, so you can hear the most important ideas I'm discovering in about a minute a day. Now, this is going to be the most impactful minute of your day, giving you the fuel, inspiration, and momentum you've been looking for. Now, after spending over five years interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people and reading hundreds of books, I'm distilling down the best ideas and sharing them on this podcast. Think of this like you're sitting down with your wise mentor each day to get their timeless advice. Momentum Minutes is a daily podcast that is now available on all podcasting players, so click the link below or search Momentum Minutes in your favorite podcasting app and hit subscribe. And after listening to a couple episodes, let me know what you think by sending me an email to sean at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Apollo, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, man. Good to see you. Yeah, it's very good to see you. One of the things I feel like has just kind of been a foundational pillar for you, both in your athletic career and then even what you're pursuing now, is your intentionality. And I've heard you even bring up one of the questions that I love and is, what does Apollo want out of life? But what does life want out of Apollo? So I would love to know just like your overall thoughts around intentionality and how you look at that going into your life. Uh, great question. I, I think intentionality is kind of the foundational, um, one of the foundational pillars in which we approach the challenges, the successes, what we want and we desire. Um, it goes back to kind of my Olympic training days, right? So for the longest time, when we first started training as a team, when I first joined the team, this was many, many years ago, 20 plus years ago, we actually didn't have access to the same ice time that other countries around the world did. So the Canadians, they skated twice a day. The South Koreans skated twice a day, sometimes three times a day. 
And we in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center only skated five days a week for two hours each day. That was all we skated. So, you know, I just did the simple math and I said, by the end of a four year cycle, I'm literally training like two years less than anybody. Two, two, two years, they have two years advantage on me in terms of actual volume of training and time spent perfecting their craft. So how do I change that? I can't control the ice time, right? That's something that's out of my control. Uh, the only thing that, and this came deeply from my work with a sports psychologist, both David Creswell and, and Doug Jowdy, who were really influential in my life. And they said, look, these are, this is kind of the stoic beliefs, right? Like you've got these other exterior components that you can't control. So that's all noise, right? You you can't control what they're doing and you can't compare yourself, uh, although it's it's helpful to have some kind of metric-based tool to know where you are stacking up against these people. But what is within your control? And the intentionality said, if I only have a two-hour window here, how do I maximize my both hyper-focus and attention pre-workout? So, you know, the 30 to 45 minutes that lead up to a training session. And then you combine that with every repetition, every lap, every rest and recovery period should be really uh, um, kind of felt in its most present state. And so, you know, deep breathing, focus on meditation, um, and really being there in the moment to... I think fully experience and also have the intentionality of why am I here? What is this training session? Why am I doing it? And then what is this and how does this relate to the overall long-term goal? So I think many athletes who get stuck into this realm of the four-year cycle of training for the Olympic Games, it's mundane and it's boring. And we oftentimes lose sight of why we set out upon this intention in the first place, right? Everyone who leaves a conversation maybe with you or hears another person that they find to be highly inspirational, for the, for the mere like two weeks to four weeks after, the energy and the addiction to that motivation is very real and it's exciting. But after that, it starts to fade over periods of time. And that's simply because we forget to set that intentionality in the beginning. And so something that we did during the Olympic training phase was pre-workout, like the five to 10 minutes before I even start my warm-up, and then again before I get on the ice is identifying, um, understanding why I'm here. Like, so what is the actual training session? Many athletes don't, right? They just kind of go through the motions and they get used to this program and they just assume that by following the routine and the plan at place and the blueprint will give them some semblance of success. And they're probably right in some capacity, but to really maximize what that looks like, there's some level of obsessiveness that exists. And that obsessiveness is around the routine of saying, okay, why am I doing this training session? Why is this important? How do I fully become encompassed and in, in, entrenched in what I'm about to undertake? And so let's call it a nine lap uh, lactate testing where effectively we're just trying to measure the lactic acid levels in our body by doing repeated sets of nine lap intervals. So we do a nine lap interval at a certain lap time Boom, we prick the finger, we check the blood, you rest 60 seconds, do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again until complete exhaustion where you can't even complete like the nine laps at anywhere where you started this. And so it's a scaling curve, right? So this is a hard, very hard kind of training workout. Like mentally and physically, you have to push yourself to where you feel like the metallic taste in your gums and in your teeth. It, it, it's it's painful. Um and the best way to prepare for that is to, I think, embrace that this is going to be very hard. But the reason why we're doing this is to give you a gauge and a foundational principle in which you can benchmark yourself off of at the rest of the year. So it's really important to take this seriously. Now, just quantify that over many months and many years and many days of training. And that's what we did. So in the most simplistic form, I'm here for a reason. I want to set every single intention of what I want to get out of this workout. How do I want this to go? And many times it doesn't go your way, but intention is everything, man. Like it, it, it's always something that I reflect upon where, you know, when we start the year, our intention is X. And by the end of the year, oftentimes the result is Y. And we have to go back and correlate, well, what happened? What went well? What didn't go well? Why did I get off track? How did I get distracted? What changed? What was out of my control? What was in my control? And why did I fall down that rabbit hole again? And am I self-sabotaging? Am I displaying the same habitual kind of consistencies I did in the past? But remaining on that intentional path is something that's really, really important. It's easy when you have purpose, right? So 
Yeah. I mean, one, one of the key things that you're hitting on though is just that presence, that quality in that moment, right? Like I'm even thinking yeah. about like someone in the executive world, they're going from meeting to meeting to meeting, each one, like they're, they're not fully engaging with, they're not deeply immersed, like why am I actually here? And there, you can't develop that level level of quality. You can't reach the depth you could if you went into that intentionally. So I just think that's such a crucial component. I, I am wondering for you, both previously when you were training and then in your business, I'm thinking about that undulation between full-on, all-out, like, immersive going and then just di- dialing back, right, like throttling down a bit. Do you put that same intentionality into your recovery? Uh, well, the gas principle is a really critical piece to understanding this, right? So we've got like these amazing uh, figures who are very publicly spoken around, whether it's the David Goggins of the world who like takes no days off and he's grinding every day, every day to battle his own internal demons and weaknesses to not give in. The Jocko Willings who um, push and push and push and get up consistently day, day out. Um, we're all built differently. And I love those guys, right? Those guys, they give me inspiration, right? I look to them in the same well. But we're all still human beings and we're not machines yet. And so because of that, we have to pay very close attention to what we call the gas principle. So if, you know, I was an athlete for a long time, I still consider myself an athlete. There's only so much that you can do at a high level that is very high quality. And at some point you have to disengage. You have to allow the body to reassimilate, to recover, to regenerate, and also have introspection. It's hard to do that when you're in the fight, right? If you ask someone who's in the middle of an MMA arena to have introspection in the middle of a fight, he's probably gonna get punched in the face and maybe even lose, right? So after the fight is when their period is that they come back down, the adrenaline is no longer at its all-time high, you're not in this fight or flight mode, but instead of reacting, you're now able to respond accordingly to what happened. Why did these things take place? And so that recovery period is really important, both physically and physiologically, but also psychologically, where it allows you to have these moments of clarity and understanding and introspection. And for me, that that happens to be in places of nature. Hmm. But I'm in New York City, or I'm in these places where I'm just go, 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 go. It's hard for me to disengage and Um, not become isolated, but at least have moments where I can relax. And so whether that's going to a cabin in the Pacific Northwest, going into the mountains of Utah and spending time there, those are places for me where I can make the best decisions to be thoughtful around, am I on the right trajectory? And am I tired? Why? Am I abusing caffeine? Am I staying up too late at night? Am I actually just creating a longer term and tale of fatigue where I feel like I'm doing a lot because I'm creating these busy motions on a daily basis, but the quality of my work is actually deteriorating every single hour. And so I I like to seek progress and I see that in the way that I'm grinding and pushing every single day, but am I actually advancing? So there's definitely a combination of like, you can't stray away from doing the hard work. You need to be smart about that hard work and then also making sure that you have the recovery time associated so that when you come back to the tasks, to the goals, to the challenges at hand, you're doing so with a renewed sense of both leadership, of energy, of mindset, um, and you're strong, right? So like anything in life, um, if your body and your mind is like a muscle, yes, you can train it to be more fortified and stronger, to have broader shoulders and carry more weight, but at some point you have to recover. And so every cycle is like this, right? And you have to think about that gas principle of now I'm in a sprint. Now I'm going to let off the gas and allow myself not to coast, but to recover so that I can sprint again. And that's the best. That's what's worked for me uh, and the most effectively. Well, I think that's so helpful. I mean, so many people confuse act, confuse action with progress, right? Like they love checking things off the box. But when you really look back, it's like, what did you accomplish? I think of this kind of like a zoom in, zoom out, right? Like you want to get to 30,000 feet. That's like your recovery time out in nature. But then you can dive in on those hyper details, which is so crucial. Like one of the things, you know, I'm just like so appreciative of, of you for is just like, you've done the inner work. Like you understand all this. And I know this takes a long, long time to go through, but I'm wondering like, what are some of those other foundational pillars for you that like you're basing your life on? Well, the foundational pillars are, you know, I I wrote about this in this, in this book that I just completed um, called hard pivot. And so it foundationally is rooted in something that I call the five golden principles. And, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't be able to articulate these five golden principles had I been, 
you know, in the middle of competing in the past, but having done a lot of deep work. And by the way, like I'm still doing work. I'm still improving. I'm still hungry for progress. Like this is a never ending script. It doesn't like all of a sudden I become the guru and master. Like I'm so far from that. Let's just be very, very real. But I'm open and I'm transparent and I'm willing to own those vulnerabilities and those weaknesses. And instead say, I I choose not to remain as is. I choose to seek a better path to move forward. And so the foundational part is my, my five are gratitude, giving, grit, gearing up, and then getting into action. So gratitude, I think, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. We've seen so much talked about this over the past five years. Um, it's a really powerful tool to use to be very present. That's what I use, right? So in, we typically, as human beings, we adapt very quickly up and down, right? So when we, you fly first class for the first time, uh, amazing, right? Now you never want to fly coach. You fly private for the first time. Like, whoa, this is really different. Like I could really get used to this. So we get used to things. We, we also, um, need to figure out ways in which we can remain very grateful for the things that we have. And we typically don't reach those states of gratitude until things are the most chaotic and messy and, and there's real fear or there's real failure. And then we just want simplicity. We no longer want those things anymore. We actually just want the most simplistic of things to breathe, to have a loved one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So having moments of gratitude for the most simplistic of human experiences, I think is very powerful to setting the stage to be present. And being present means you can do your best work. It also means that you're no longer angry or sad. You're just here and now. Um, giving is, um, sorry, do you want, you want to touch on well, that? No, no, no. I'm just curious, right? Like you try to kind of talk about like going into the, the, the eye of the storm, into the fire, like facing that trauma in order to come out to the other side, to view things from a more simple perspective. I, I think about the, uh, the F1 CEO of Mercedes, Toto Wolf. He, he says he thinks like all of the greats, they've gone through like deep trauma in their life. And I'm wondering, do you feel like that's a necessary component of coming out this other side? Like you've got to face those demons. You've got to face that evil in order to reach that other level. I think every great story in the history of of human history has shown incredible challenge that has been overcome. Hmm. That's the reality. Uh, There's no great life that is worth living without its troubles, aches, and pains. That's a part of the process. That is why we have this unique human experience to adapt and mold and shape our way to be who we want to be. It's not without, it's just like when you're creating a samurai sword, right? The perfect sword takes so much dedication and time and many times many failures in order to find the right blend of making sure that metal and the honing and the sheathing of this particular craft is done. And the same thing for the human mind, the human mind and spirit, right? It takes time. Um, You know, Douglas Malick, one of my favorite authors and poets, writes around good timber does not grow with ease, Hmm right? The greater wind, um, the, the stronger trees, right? The stronger wind, the stronger trees. So I, I just, I, I firmly believe, yes, uh, athletes and sports specifically, there's a lot that is missing from the wholesomeness of an athlete perspective. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they tap into rage and insecurity and, and, and anger and fears of failure, whatever they are, right? It doesn't really matter. Those are levers and tools in which people can use. Some of the greatest business minds in the planet what are they driven for? Like if you have a multi billions of dollars, what's driving you? Is it driving you for what is there underneath the surface that is causing you to wake up every single day and keep grinding? Hmm. And sometimes there's an, you know, there's this insatiable desire to be recognized. Maybe it's ego, whatever those things are. You're absolutely correct. The micro traumas that occur to us throughout our life experiences, especially and typically at a young age are what we lean on, um, in our actions moving forward. So I think that there's two avenues here. One, which you're controlled by those experiences. That's what's a little bit dangerous, right? Where you're no longer in the present and you're just merely trying to satisfy something that happened in the past to reach it in the future. So you're not here and present. You're just living in the past, but also trying to strive for something in the future. And then pretty soon you're old and you're trying to recoup your health, right? I think the, the Dalai Lama said it best, something around those, that quote around man is not living in the present and he always lives in the past while also seeking, believing he's going to live forever. And then he spends the rest of his life trying to recoup his health, never having lived in the present. Um, so I, I think these things are, are pretty important, but I, I agree with you, man. Like the, look, trauma is in everyone's life. 
And it occurs in different phases, right? It could be someone like stealing lunch from you when you're like in elementary school. And that had some like weird impact on your way in which how you are dealing with money or the way that you deal with uh, finance or with friends and family or business, whatever that is. And that probably trickles down for many more years and much deeper than one can realize. So when I talk about the two differences here, is one is what you're controlled. And the other, um, w- when you're controlled by this, sometimes that internal voice gets quite toxic. Mm-hmm. And that's what I don't want people to dive into, right? If And everyone responds differently, right? So some athletes, when you give them negative criticism, it's almost like this, I'm going to prove this person wrong. Like it gives you fire. But a lot of people, you give them negative criticism, they kind of, they they, they cower back and they kneel back and they, 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 they become paralyzed. They need the positive feedback in order to move. So finding out what works best for you is really important and also not becoming so, I think, enslaved to that voice to where it's so internally toxic between your two ears that you can no longer make progress. And then your whole day is spent trying to satisfy this unhappiness with what had just happened. That's a dangerous place to be. And I speak from experience in that perspective, right? I spent many years of my career listening to that voice and battling internally this voice of, you're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. It's never good enough. There's more to give. There's always so much more to do. You go win a World Cup or World Championships. You don't go celebrate with your teammates after the banquet. Instead, you go back to your room and you're watching skating tapes while packing your bags. Like you just won. Like, like this is, isn't this it, Apollo? Like, Like what's going on here? So something internally that is unsettled, that in that capacity. So what we need to do, I believe, is we spend our time catalyzing and metabolizing those failures and those traumas in a way that progresses us further. But instead of being controlled by them, we recognize and face them and say, yes, this has happened in my life. I understand that. I'm willing to do the deep work. I don't necessarily need to heal from them, but I need to understand why I'm behaving in this fashion. So, you know, sports psychology is deeply rooted in trying to optimize the highest possible performance, regardless of conditions. That is, that is sports psychology in its essence. How do you deal with your internal negative voice? How do you deal with external factors outside of your control? And how do you manage this, um, this voice or this experience that maybe happened many, many years ago? Um, that that you need to still perform on the world stage. And so the greatest athletes in the world and the greatest performers in the world, they use that to their advantage in a very powerful way. So it's up to you, the individual, right? You can either be controlled by these things or you can use them to your advantage. And I, and I choose to the latter. I think everyone has the ability to. Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode, but before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, and my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on some stuff that that neuroscience is like really proving out, right? First is the awareness, uncovering actually the reason for the behavior that you do. But then how do you rewrite the story, right? Like you mentioned those really challenging times and rewriting the narrative like, oh, yeah, this challenging time is going to help me progress moving forward to my ultimate goal there. I just think that's so important in like really rewriting that narrative. One of the things you hit on a second ago, though, and I just always am kind of like going back and forth in my mind, you you talk about like the totality and the wholesomeness of the athlete. And even earlier, you mentioned just like your obsessive nature, right? Like even this psychotic type drive towards your competitive nature. And I'm wondering, could you have reached the level of success you did without that drive, without that internal scratchiness, right? Like you even mentioned winning Olympic gold and then thinking about the next thing. I always think about Nick Saban, the legendary Alabama head coach. You see him win a championship and he's like, he's like barely smiling and on to the next one. So I, I guess the, the broad question here is, can you achieve that level of like the top 0001% without that constant tension and discomfort? Or could you actually dial it back a bit? I've asked myself the same question and one of my childhood friends often, he believes that we can't. He mm-hmm. believes that in order to reach that that last 
you know, quarter mile of this entire journey takes tapping into the darkness a little bit. Mm. Um, and it, that darkness is your own self, your fears and securities and self doubts and such. Um, the obsessiveness is something that's interesting. Like I, I, I play around with that often, right? I wouldn't change anything in my career, but I can tell you that the, the person who I am today, Sean, is entirely different than the person I was 15 years ago. Like, I mean, so different. I'm unrecognizable to my teammates. And I only know that because I talked to some of them and they're like, dude, you are so different than before. You're so much more patient. You're so much more, you have, you have, you actually have empathy. So these are, are attributes and, and traits that in business today, your vulnerability and your empathy towards other human beings, these are critical communication pieces to understanding each other and establishing connection. Hmm. When I was competing, I didn't have that. It was pretty brutal. Um, and I and I didn't really understand that there could have been a different path. But to, just to answer your question directly, uh, for me personally, I do not think I would have been able to reach the level of success without having that that same type of of, of obsessiveness. Yeah. And the reason why is because th there's a genetic code that exists in sport. Some athletes are built for certain sports. They're just they're designed body type wise. Michael Phelps for swimming, right? This person for track and field. Like I actually wasn't genetically designed. Uh, to be a speed skater, like, and and you don't know this because you don't know the technical aspects, but like, you know, my hips are pushed back a little bit, right? My, my, I'm a little bit too short, right? My legs are not long enough. The the best athletes in the world in short track are typically like five nine to five eleven. Their hips, their hips are actually tucked under, almost weird. Like you know, like an old man would like walk yeah. with like his, his like shun shoulder. Like that typical stance is the greatest athletes in the world in short track speed skating have that naturally. Now it's not good for any other sport but only for short track. I was a complete opposite. I was built to like lift weights, right? So like erect back, you know, shoulders back, you know, uh, um, I mean, it's very stable. Like you would go into a back squat. That is the complete opposite of speed skating. The speed skating, you'll be crouched over in these like hunched over positions. And because of those genetic things that I couldn't change, it required this to be so unsatisfied. I used to watch my technique, Sean, and be so disgusted with what I saw. I mean, I would be winning races and I would, it, like my, my coaches and my friends and teammates would be like, that was incredible. And internally, I was, I, I wanted to keel over and, and vomit because I was like that, the way that I'm skating is so ugly. It, I, I just, I wasn't satisfied. Um, and that's insane, right? Because I just won a race. I was literally beating some of the best athletes in the world. But I think underneath that silver lining contains this competitiveness and this drive and obsessiveness around just wanting to do more and overcome what I thought that I was at a disadvantage for. So I just always, in the back of my head, I thought that I was at a disadvantage. Hmm. That the athletes were better. They just genetically were designed better. They had better training, better equipment, better technique. They physically were stronger. And so that led me down this like very obsessive path of like never being satisfied. And I was, I was like, I was crazy, man. Like it's all that I thought about every single waking moment of my day. I, I couldn't, I couldn't break free. So that was my own prison. Um, but it was also very beautiful in the same time, right? There's always two dichotomy um, vision points there. One, which is it was toxic and it was obsessive and it was very intense and there was zero balance in my life. On the other side, it allowed me to understand how capable the human mind and spirit and body truly are when it remains committed to something. So now, having been almost 12 years retired from my sport, and understanding a bit more about myself and why I behave the way that I do, um, I see a similarities in many other people in their own career paths in terms of what they're facing, <laughs> in terms of the challenges that they've had, and trying to find ways to say, hey, there could be a better path here. I'm not saying don't do the work. That is the path and a part of the path, but there's got to be a deeper, more, I call it, like, I wasn't willing to accept myself when I was training. It was only until the last four years of my career where I looked in the mirror and said, you are imperfect in so many ways. And there are athletes who actually are better than you. Do you accept that? Well, in this present state, I have to come to those terms. I have to surrender to that current state and outcome in a way that allows me to then take that weight vest off and say, I break free and I choose to begin working to be the person who I want to become in this sport, in business, in life, et cetera. But it wasn't until I could have that open conversation with myself because if I was always hiding behind this poker face, 
and telling myself that I don't have weaknesses. And it's all this like BS, right? Around like, there's no cracks in the armor. That's great when you're in a competitive state, but the reality is at some point, you you know the real answer and only you can answer to yourself. And so I just think it's really important for people to have this kind of transparent, open communication with yourself, um, figure out why you behave the way that you do, what's triggering you, and then utilizing that and catalyzing it in a way that creates healthy obsessiveness. Um, but no, like I don't think I would have reached those levels of performance because I, I was insane, man. Like I was, the, the training we did was, was, I wish we recorded it because it's unfathomable. The, the amount of volume of training we did and the intensity that we did for the duration of time we're not talking about one season. We're not talking about one game, one month, six months. I'm talking about for years and years of like never letting off the gas in terms of the mental focus, right? Of knowing that that's there. Yes, we go through these phases of like recovery and such, but I was just always dialed in. And we developed this mantra of like not an almond more, not an almond less, talking about nutrition because <clears throat> I had to really... I had to cut a ton of weight without losing too much strength. And the only way to do that was took a series of like very extreme training and, and dietary restrictions. Mm. What you were saying a minute ago uh, makes me think mm. of this Brene Brown quote, and it's your armor's preventing you from growing into your gifts. It's like so true. It's like once you unleash those shackles, right? Like we can develop so much more as human beings, but I even know what you're talking about. Um, that athletic ego, um, we're, we're so tied to that so often. But I, I would love if you actually pull back the curtain uh, because I, I know some of the psychotic type workouts. I would love for you just to like even give an overall preview of like what that was like in in the moment um, because it's still unfathomable to me what, what you were doing consistently for years. Yeah. So like we'd wake up, um, we would, we would wake up around six, six thirty in the morning. Um, I'd be at the ice rink anywhere from like seven 30. Uh, yeah. Seven 30 begin warming up by seven 45. Uh, we weren't, by the way, our warm up was one hour. So like, off the ice, I'd run like a mile and a half stretch. I'd do some skating exercises just with my tennis shoes, my, you know, my running shoes, do some, they're called like crossover bands. They look like basically long seat belts that we wrap around ourselves, and someone else is holding it. So we can, uh, we can simulate the lean in the corners. Um, and that, we're, we're like drenched in sweat. Right. And then we go chained into a racing suit, jump on the ice by nine and from nine to 1130 or noon, we have like a two and a half hour interval training session. And that can be a wide variety of different lap times and lactic capacity, lactic strength, whatever we're trying to target that day. After the ice session, we get off, put our running shoes back on. And then we have like a 30 minute, super high intense plyometric workout. If you ever want to see kind of what that looks like, the only video I think we have is by this guy uh, who did something for time magazine. It's called how we train by time magazine. It's on, I think it's on YouTube. Somewhere. Yeah. We'll have it linked up. Um, yeah. And, um, that you can see us do some of these plyometrics and jumps. And so we do that after, and then after, so that's like call it like uh, around like 1230, 1245, we have a break. Um, break is anywhere from two hours to three hours to four hours, depending. So I would, you know, I had my own food with me. I'd eat right away. I'd go back to my house. I'd kind of decompress. I'd rest. I typically would watch skating tapes in that little, in, in that downtime. Of course. <laughs> come, come back to the ice rink around 2.30 to 2.45, uh, warm up again, this time for like a half an hour. So different type of warm up. So like more plyometric based, more explosive based, um, jump into the weight room, do some like very high intensity weight workout for about an hour and then jump back on the ice for another hour and a half speed training session. So we wrap like around 5.30 or 6, um, go to the recovery center, maybe put the Norma Tech boots on, maybe get like some like body work done, lower back, maybe some electronic stim on like, you know, any injuries, um, eat a little bit. And then the day is over for the national team. And then I would go home and then I built in the basement of my house is back when I lived in Utah, like my own little mini training like uh, center, right? I had like treadmill and bike and like, weights and all this stuff. And we would do a sprint interval workout from like 7 p.m. to like 8 p.m. And then at 8 p.m., I would jump in the sauna for like a half an hour to 40 minutes. I'd eat dinner and then sharpen my skates and go to bed. I mean, that was like every day. So you think about that, like there's actually not even... 30 minutes there where I'm like wasting time. I'm either trans, I'm, I'm either in transit going to the ice rink in which by the way, when I'm in transit driving my car, I like shifted my body weight to sit on my, my right butt cheek so that my left hip was lifted up 
Um, basically, like when you're in the corner, you you, you want to be like this, right? I want this shoulder to be up because when I lean, everything becomes more level. So I wanted that to be a natural state because it wasn't natural to me. And so I like forcefully did this every single day to make it feel much more natural, almost like I had scoliosis. Like that's what I wanted. I wanted to be like this because this is the position we always would want to be in the skating. Uh, so like just compound that over like long periods of time. So I started focusing on like recovery, right? Like how do I bring the food with me so that I can cut back the time from when I complete my training session to begin ingesting the types of calories, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates to begin recovery process right away. Like, what does that look like? Right. And so if I can, if I can do that five minutes faster, three minutes faster each day over years, it adds up. Hmm. And so that's where this like intensity of focus comes in. Um, and just the measurement. And then I remember like on a, like a, you know, a Saturday afternoon and Sunday is completely off for the athletes, but I think I was always training. So like, you know, Christmas day, I was training twice a day, Thanksgiving day. I was training twice a day. Like it, like it was birthdays. doesn't matter. Like it's just, it's just another day. Um, so that's, that was the process, man. Like that, you know, and, and the intensity of the workout is really, I think where it gets pretty aggressive, right? Like when you talk about just the sheer volume of the training and speed skating is one of these unique sports where it requires the consistency of technical training because it is such a obscure, weird body position. That's not, it's not, um, it's not comfortable for human beings, unless you're genetically designed to sit in that position. Um, and then you carry like 2.5 to 2.8 G forces around each corner on one leg. So that that's a lot of pressure. It's like a 550 pound one-legged squat repeatedly over and over and over again, every day that you're training and skating. And you can't replicate that in other areas like off of the ice. And so that's why we spend a lot of time there. Um, the weekends are typically spent uh, between meditating, being, you know, I was a big sauna user. I think that was a big part of my recovery, both I think psychologically and also from a physiological perspective. I think that was one of my, one of my real secret weapons mm. was using hot and cold therapy as a part of my recovery. Um, and nutrition was really dialed in. I mean, we were basically eating cyclical ketogenic diets, like 15 years before it was ever even popularized. We were doing hit workouts and Tabata, like before anyone was even talking about it. And I didn't know what these things were, by the way. These, these were just, these were training. I remember the, the the wrestling athletes in Colorado Springs. I mean, these guys, talk about like inventing CrossFit. That comes from like the military and the wrestling background. Like wrestlers have been doing CrossFit type training. Like from when I first joined the Olympic Training Center in 1996 is when I first saw them, these guys do these insane types of workouts. So again, like, these things are popularized in our area to really push the body, spirit, mind in ways. And I learned a lot from all those different experiences, but the load that you're talking about is important. Um, and it requires a lot of mental focus because most of us, like when your body's fatigued and tired, it's easy to get injured. So if you're doing box jumps with a 45 pound weight vest yeah. and you're doing it over and over and over again, after you just got out of the squat rack, like you need to remain really focused. Are you one lapse of concentration? You may, you may slip and bang your shin or whatever it is, right? There's going to be an issue there. So the concentration factor is something that <clears throat> is oftentimes we spend so much time developing our physical self, but the mind is where you need to remain the most sharp. And it's also the one that typically goes before the body. Um, which is interesting if you think about that. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the crazy things you bring up that that concentration element, the number of um, stair runs and like one-legged bounding jumps up steps. I like, I can't believe you didn't twist an ankle. So like the concentration over years is incredible. One of the things I just want to highlight because I think this is consistent amongst like the elite of the elite. You mentioned when you were driving in your car, like literally elevating on the right butt cheek just to strengthen that. I view these as like reps hidden in plain sight where like other people might be in the car, have no idea you're working on something and the greats are like, finding every little opportunity to do this, like both physically and then also the mental component. I, I, I just would love to know though, like if someone's hearing this, they're probably like, what the hell? Like, this is crazy. But I want to know like what your internal game is like. What's the dialogue going on during all of this? Like you get back to the house at 7 p.m. You're about to jump on the treadmill for a sprint workout. Like what's Apollo saying to himself? Well, I mean, it was different every day, right? Some days I was like, deeply motivated and I feel inspired and hungry and I feel like very high energy. And there's days where I just don't want to do it. So the beautiful thing about setting a schedule and discipline for yourself is you no longer give that option. Hmm. Doesn't, doesn't get a vote in what you're doing. 
it shouldn't get a vote, right? You have a plan in place. And so it's much easier to divert from existing plan if it's not written down in front of you. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. you can tell yourself, well, I don't really need to be that. But if you've got tasks set in front of you, this is the reasons why intentionality, this is what I have to do. This is what's important. I may not go to the quality and to the intensity that I'd like, but I'm going to get it done in some capacity. And <clears throat> it was hard. Right? And again, I didn't do this all alone, man. Like I had a team around me. Um, my strength and conditioning coach was there. I, I hired him to live in my house to monitor everything because I didn't want to have a lapse of a day. I, I felt like I really needed that because I knew to the levels of extremity that we needed to go to in order for me to exhaust all of the options in my preparation to really see what I was made of. Because um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to get on the podium again. Like the sport had really been evolving in a certain way. So the dialogue I used, you know, I used to tell myself like um, that I wanted to have zero regrets around when I, when I finally arrived into my final Olympic games. And that was, that's hard to have, right? Because I think as competitors, we typically are so tied and married to the result as a success point and as a, and as a, a sign of accomplishment that if we don't get it, we're deeply dissatisfied. And so I wanted to go beyond that contextually and say, well, I just want to get to the Olympic games and actually be able to say to myself that I have, this is, this is my best. This is my absolute best. And, and I can look around the world and say, I don't think anyone else went through what I went through. And maybe they did, but I, if they did, like that's kudos because I, I was willing to go to the line time and time again and cross it in terms of overtraining, cracking under pressure, all these things. Um, and there was many times which we, we really went over that line and it was deeply um, hard to get back off, like on the treadmill. Yeah, have you come uh, across a competitor who you feel like was equal or exceeded that intensity in their training as consistently and for as long as you did? I'm, I mean, I, I'm sure that there's many, right? I think that there's, I think there's many, um, you know, we hear stories and I'm never one to compare, but I, I just, I hear certain people talk about certain athletes. There's a couple iron men and iron women who talk about this, who did the long-term, you know, the ultra endurance, uh, iron man stuff. Um, you know, you've heard Kobe talk about his obsessiveness around the training associated for long durations and periods of time. Um, I, I, you know, Olympic athletes are somewhat unique because there's like no monetary component here. That's we like don't have the, lots of, yeah, it's yeah, why I'm like even more intrigued by this, right? Like you're yeah. basically like going out on a limb and you're like, I'm betting all of myself and then I'm going to sacrifice everything and suffer. So I just like, I admire the hell out of that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's no, there's no guarantee, right? There's no next season in the Olympics. It's like, you got to wait four years. Yeah if you want to go and compete again on the world stage that people are paying attention to. And a sport like mine, where like, there's not a lot of competitors around the world. It's not like basketball or golf or football. There's like, you know, there's, there's millions of uh, participants like short track speed skating is a small sport and it's dominated by it's changed now, but back then it was dominated by only very few countries. So we would, we would go to like competitions in like Slovakia and there was like no one in the stands in like the dead of winter, like negative 10, right? And, and the hunger and desire to win has nothing to do with who's watching. We still very much wanted to be there and we're still training in the same way. So I don't know, there's like a sense of, I think both purpose and purity and true North that exists in the Olympic space that I have yet to find anywhere else. And we've seen that with, uh, you know, I've, I've seen that with like climbers, right? People who are climbing around the world in like some of these weird, obscure sports that don't receive world acclaim but the commitment level and the dedication is there that is sometimes unfathomable. Um, and I think that that's really beautiful. Like, I love that. I love, I love seeing people do that today, even in the most smallest of crafts. What were you most drawn to? Was it like the actual sport overall? Was it the opportunity to compete in the Olympics? Was it the training? Like what just like lit you up inside? All of it did. I, I, I deeply, I actually really enjoyed the training. I enjoyed the competitiveness on a daily basis. Like to me, it was a competition between myself and my teammates. I used that a lot. Um, they, they may not have known that, but you know, I, would, I was doing all these extra training sessions that they probably didn't know about um, all the time. And so 
I would show up on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, like already fatigued, way more fatigued than the rest of the team. But I had set a standard for myself where I said, well, even at my most fatigued state, I should still be completely dominant over this workout. Mm. That was the standard which I wanted to conduct myself so that when I was rested, I was, it was like night and day difference. There was like no competition. Mm. I don't care what everyone else is doing as long as you're competing for second through 10th. Right, because the, the the spot on top is is that's reserved for me. So yes, we're all competing, but let me know how second through ten does. Like that is literally my psychology, and it was like arrogant and brash and aggressive. But um, I was a competitor, man. I remember like you know every every like two years there was an athlete on the team. And by the way, I like I love all these people. Like they're incredible. Um, but I would like set these like weird scenarios in my head to like make it very personal for some reason. I don't know why. I, mean, I, I do know why I did that, but like I, it didn't need to do that. So it was very abrasive at times, but I'll give you an example. So every two years, sometimes every year, there was someone, every national team trials, which is basically a domestic competition to see who makes the world team. And then the world team then goes and competes in the world championships. So I had like one, like, I don't know, 10 plus of these in a row, like back to back to back undefeated, right? In, in the domestic stage. So to me, that was very like all ego. I was like, if I can't dominate the US, I can't dominate in the world. So I want there to be so much of a gap between when I win and the person who's second that it's like we're racing two different races. That was like my whole goal. But every couple of years, there was someone who was skating really well. And they would try to threaten um, what I would consider to be my throne, right? It's so stupid now that I say it. And so I would use this in a way where sometimes I was actually afraid. I was like, shit, this guy's actually, this guy's got, he has what it takes to actually win this domestic competition. I can't let that happen. That cannot happen. That is unacceptable to me. And so I remember like one of these races where I had one, I just beat this person. And I remember like just raising my fist up in the air and like looking him right in the face and just like basically, and I could see so angry that I was like, basically I was just flaunting this in his face and um, it got in his head it really got in his head. And so like, there's like all these psychological games that we would play in the sport where like my whole goal was to try to beat my competitors before we even actually raced. So if they were watching me in practice, if we were doing the warm up, if we were domestic and you know, if we were internally as a team, like be so strong during training that they just assumed that I was crazy and that there was just no chance to ever win. Um, like I wanted that to be embedded into the psyche, which made it easier for me when we actually did compete. Um, but I say that because like all, you know, all these things were, they didn't necessarily need to have happened. And by the way, they created friction on the team. They really did because technically I'm the leader of the team. I'm the captain of the team, but here I am, you know, trying to like overpower my own teammates when it doesn't really matter. Like what we do in the domestic competitions. I just was so ego driven around not wanting to lose to my friends, um, that it caused this like deep personal conflict in the way that I trained and performed. Um, but I, so I've seen, I know that Jordan did that. I know that Kobe has done stuff like that. I know that Phelps has done stuff like that. Uh, and, and, and many, many others. So it's, it's unique, right? The, the, the culture that is built through, through sports, um, can really reveal character quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think over time it's, it's interesting how we adapt and grow from that, from being so isolated and zoomed in to zooming out and saying, Hmm, how do I become a better leader so I can win and also, help lift others up in the process. That's that's a much more healthy and I think respectful approach. I'm smiling because remember back to my athletic career, like I know exactly what you're talking about. Like you're you're playing games with other people they're not even aware they're playing. Like most people think like, all right, you're just playing to win or lose. Like the, the yeah. level that you're competing in is such a different level the other people aren't even aware of. But but I'm wondering, you said like that's not a healthy thing. I understand in terms of like actually creating friction within the team. But do you think those those internal games you're playing with yourself are necessary for you to find like new things to go after? Uh, well, I think it, it worked for me, right? So I think yes. And I also think that I remember hearing teammates of mine say that like when I was at the training session with the team, the level of professionalism and people being on edge or being ready was different. Mm -hmm. So like if I had left to go do, I don't know, like an NBC shoot in Los Angeles or something, and the team was there for two days in which I wasn't there, my, my, my other teammates would text me and be like, you wouldn't like, like the sentiment on the ice, the energy is different that you're not here. 
hmm. much of. And then when I retired, the same thing, right? Like we're kind of missing that level of intent. Like I brought this level of intensity every single day, and that's hard, right? Like when you're when you're when your leaders on your team, your squad, are bringing this level of intensity and cadence on a daily basis, everyone wants to match that. It's very infectious in a really really good way. And when the whole team starts to come down. That's also infectious and you don't want that. That's why success breeds success. Iron sharpens iron. And I didn't know this at the time, but that the consistency in which I showed up fully every day, regardless of what kind of internal mechanisms I was using to motivate myself, that was very powerful. And I do believe ultimately, whether the athletes on the team wanted to beat me or they wanted to dethrone me or they actually just were better than me. I think it just rose everyone's level. Hmm. And that's the ultimate goal is that when they rise, it also causes me to rise. And then it goes like this, boom, boom, boom. And then before you know it, you're like in this state where you're thinking, wow, I don't think I've actually would have ever been at this level of commitment and sacrifice and intensity and also expectation for performance than before. Hmm. Um, that's the reason why I went to go live in South Korea in 2007. I went like we, we called it going into the lion's den, right? To go learn from like, why are they so good at this sport? What are they doing that's different? Waking up at four in the morning, getting to the ice rink by 445. And then seeing by the time I get to the ice rink, the rink has already been open. And there's like eight, nine and 10 and 11 year olds training for an hour before I got there doing technical uh, work in ways that are far more beautiful than I was doing. So that was the highlight and the light bulb that says, wow, I understand the level of commitment and expectation and also the standard, right? We talk about the standard always and often. If the standard is here, you're going to rise to that as an occasion. If your standard is here, this is where you're going to start from. So again, as we begin our own transformations, there's like this dichotomy of yes, self-acceptance and love and understanding yourself that you're not perfect and you're not a machine. And the other is, have you had enough? Have you had enough of not getting what you believe you deserve, what you see other people getting that you feel is unfair and that they're lucky and that they're less smart and talented than you, but it doesn't matter. They have it. You don't have that. So who has to answer for that? The lottery ticket number person, the random meme coin they bought that shut up like 10,000 X in a return. It doesn't matter. You don't have that. So what are you going to do about it? No one else is going to hand it to you or give it to you. That's up to you as an individual. And so the beautiful thing is when the ignition switch goes on and the light bulb says, I've had enough, I no longer will accept the way that I'm operating today. And therefore, my standard in which I will operate on a morning, an afternoon, and evening basis rises from point A to point B. We see that in people's eye. The eye changes when you look at someone in the, in the face and you see them, and we haven't seen them for a year, and they seem totally different. Energies change. What, is, what has changed? They're the same human being as they were a year ago, but something internally said that they've had enough and they desire something different. And I can't do that for that person. My book, Hard Pivot, can't do that for you. It can only show you, hopefully, some semblances of what is possible through my own pain and suffering internally that I've kind of set my own obstacles, but also to understand that the human spirit, sometimes science can explain some of it, but not all of it. And that's what we want to tap into. That's the beauty of the Americana culture is that it goes against all these types of other um, theologies around success. We believe that if you do the work and if you don't stop until it's done, you will reach that level of success that you desire. Like that is the American dream. And so again, like I get fired up talking about this because I see my friends and family and loved ones and there's others who I meet, you know, I do a lot of, I do a lot of talking both internally to our own venture team um, as an investor and also to a lot of other companies that I work with. And we talk about like, have you had enough? Are you ready to make the shift into what you can truly become? And I don't know what that is for each person, right? Maybe that's a 2% incremental gain. Maybe that's a 20, maybe that's a 200% incremental gain. I don't know. I don't know. But it's just all about like staying on fire. And that's a, I love it when people are on fire and they're dialed in and they're motivated, man, like get out of that person's way because they will find the path in some capacity. So 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything better than that, right? Like we probably most have felt that, that in, internal pull, right? You're not being pushed, you're being pulled towards something. You mentioned that standard. In one of your earlier books, you had, you had a great story about your dad. He was basically like talking about that standard and he's saying the only ceiling you have, Apollo, is the one in our house. And it's just like, yeah. let's go after it. Let's just get after that. I, I would love to know for you though, like you, you even mentioned now doing some of your stuff as an investor, like what, what does that internal work look like as you've progressed out of sports? Like uh, the way I think about this is, is I want to be like a corporate athlete, right? Like you got to, you got to approach your business life the same way you, you approached your competitive nature. And so I'm just wondering what that looks like for you today. Like, what is your training like to be a better learner, a, a better investor, a better businessman? Uh, it's an, I feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock, you know, I, I, I do. I'm look, I'm 39 years old, right? I'm turning 40 in May, 2022. So my, one of my business partners, Sean is 26 years old. The other one's 24. Okay. Like they are inc- they're savant level genius, like incredible. Um, but I'm like got 15 plus years in some of these guys. And as I think about that, I've got 15 years that they don't have of both experience, but they also have an entire lifetime living in a world that was unfamiliar to me. Hmm. So I feel like, again, I'm playing catch up and I'm playing catch up. And so now instead of being handcuffed to the less than approach, I embrace it. And I say, I don't have all the answers. And I may not be the smartest person in the room or the most experienced in this particular venture, but I'm willing to learn. And I want to connect with both founders, with the companies. How do we figure out solutions to help you succeed and thrive? And so the hyper-immersive state is something that I'm deeply passionate about. I think that's there's nothing better than that. Setting the personal board of directors. So you're starting five, as you will. Sometimes it's not five people. Maybe it's four or three or two. But those people that have your best interests in mind, that will push you, that will support you, and that will actually call you out in terms of ownership when you need to be called out is really critically important. And those people that can give you the guidance and the guardrails to help you, tra- you know, in the trajectory of reaching your goals is really, really important. Um, and then also going and, and really kind of diving deeper into the five golden principles, right? Learning on what were the attributes that made me great as a speed skater and applying them in the same way, the same type of rigor and intensity in this new venture, in this reinvention stage, knowing full well that the previous blueprint will always want me to go back to what was more comfortable, what was more safe. And instead understanding that in order for me to really grow, I have to be thrust out of the nest time and time again. That's important. All of us have to. So don't shy away from the feelings of feeling stupid or don't know what's going on. These are a part of the process. Embrace them. And then when you when you have the next opportunity to display, you are prepared. You are ready. So my process today is similar, but also much more deeply rooted in empathy and vulnerability and openness. But I still play the game. You know, I think it's just much less about me and much more about us as a team and trying to help uplift others. And so I never try to take the spotlight when we have Zoom calls and conversations around what my career path was and my own personal beliefs and these things. Instead, I want to highlight my teammates. And and, and that's what's important to me. So I also deeply feel a sense of like passion around like my purpose of just seeing and helping other people win. I'm really intrigued by that, actually. Like that, that journey from looking at yourself to now, like you just like want to unleash the potential in others. And like, that's, that's like speaking to me too. That's what I love to do as well. And I just want to know how that progressed for you. I don't know. Like it's 15 years of solely focused on me, everybody else and everything else in my life was number two, number three, number four prioritized. Everything else was centered around helping me be my best version. And as selfish as that was, it, it was, it was important, but I also realized that, uh, as I play the game of life and as I go through my own script, that there's, I needed to find something that wasn't solely based on my own fulfillment and my own happiness. And at times I needed to figure out ways in which I could help other people. And I just, I found that no matter what businesses that I was doing, whenever I would come back to the US and I would give a speaking engagement or connect with people in person, there was this like sense of, and there's a sense of joy that I didn't have doing other things in my life. Does that make sense? Like, absolutely. Um, and I and look, I love business and I love investing, uh, and I and I and I intertwine them today. But when I spend time with someone on one on one, or when we're uh, I'm diving deep with an executive team, 
and I see the the light flicker in their eye again after feeling like you know they've been, they've been tired, they're mundane, they're doing the same things over and over. And for a second, I see that I see it turn back on again. I see a sense of play, of joy, of fulfillment, of purpose, of excitement again. That is very addictive to me. It's like being in flow state of being an athlete. So that's what I seek. That's what I'm hungry for. That's what I want to inspire. I just want people to realize that they have been living their life in the passenger seat when they can realize that they've had their hands on the steering wheel the whole time. They can't control what's coming at them through the windshield, but they can control how they react and then hopefully respond in ways that best really um, give them the best light to move forward. And that's the ultimate goal. That's that's what I want to leave um, as I continue on this path. Gets back to the stoic philosophy where we started, right? Control what you control. I, I know we're going to finish this up here in a minute. Just a few couple quick more questions. And one, yeah. like it is so apparent, Apollo, like how much inner work you've done. I know a lot of that is just like understanding your inner game, but you've also learned a ton. Like what have been some of the influential books, let's just call them, that have just been like earthquake oh, books, man. right? Like where your worldview changed. Yeah. I wish you could see this. Um, There's so many. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Holiday's Daily Stoic is such a great assimilation. I'm so glad we have someone in the modern era who has decided to commit his life to revamping our association with some of these Stoic beliefs. That, that's a really powerful book. Um, uh, there's so many. Um, Man, I, I wish you could see all these books here, right? Thinking fast, thinking slow. Joseph Campbell is a hero with a thousand faces. Um, Speaking yeah. of Campbell, my favorite all-time quote of his is, the cave you fear enter holds the treasure that you seek. I feel like that is so much embodies <laughs> Apollo Ono, right? Like just continually, you even mentioned, like going out in the deep end, you don't know what's going to happen, but like you're going to control what you control, give everything you've got. And I, I just love that. It's, it's clear you're just like the embodiment of like a lifelong learner, a searcher, someone who like deeply cares and embodies this. And I, I just love the hell out of that. I'm right. curious, man. Yeah. Like I, I'm, th- I think that's a big part of us. We have to remain childlike in our curiosity. So all kids are like relentlessly curious. Yeah. Why does this work? What is this? Right? Everything's new and novel and exciting. And they want to they understand what's happening. As we grow, we tend to tell ourselves that we have all the answers and we know these things. And it's not true. We have to pour the cup out. If you want to actually grow, create the beginner's mind. Um, and, and, and that's just a uh, I don't know, man. I, I just, I, I'm actually, not, that's like a, that's my own personal superpower that I hold to my heart is that I'm, I naturally am curious. Like I actually love to learn around what, how did, why does this work? What is that? You know, like what's going on here with this business or this venture or why do you do that? I, I just, I, I think that's an important part of play that we can't release as we all get super hardcore and focused don't lose the essence of play because that's where you can find some joy in what you're doing on those days, especially that's really hard. I got to share a quick story, a mutual connection of ours, share with me, Adam Robinson, chess player, legendary yeah. investor. So this is, uh, and I, I forgot the guy's name, one of the, the legendary directors in Japan. This is about 20 years ago. So he's receiving the Oscar for the Lifetime Achievement Award. He gets up there. He's like 88 years old. He's done, he's done more work than anyone else ever. And he gets up there and he basically says like, I'm not deserving of this. He goes like, I'm still a beginner. Yeah, and it's just like, wow, like this guy reached the pinnacle of his craft and all he's saying is complete beginner's mind. So I love that. I, I know how much you embody that. So final one here, Apollo. If you could sit down, have a long form conversation like this, anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love just like getting to talk like this with? Mm. Oh, it changes all the time. I, I Marcus Aurelius is one. Um I think Lincoln is another, I would say John F. Kennedy, um, another Martin Luther King, um, Gandhi, you know, like some of the, some of the most, um, impactful and powerful people on the planet. Um, and there's, there's, there's probably many, many others from different countries, but I think I, I tend to go towards people who lived in very volatile and conflicted times that had to make very hard decisions where today it seems like, well, that makes sense. Yeah. That seems like maybe makes sense to make that decision. But like, imagine being there in the moment, like you don't know, right? Like you don't know what's right and what's wrong. I just want to talk to that person around what that psychology was. How do they remain steadfast 
in their true north, in their moral beliefs and conviction that this is the choice, not knowing that we're going to read about it in 100 years and it's going to be celebrated as being um, something of a luminary figure. Instead, saying this is this is what's important. Um, so the selflessness, I think, is a critical piece to learning from that process. And so there's a lot of people, man. There's 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 people um, all over the planet. Um, yeah. Dan LaPaul, there, there's so much just in that answer alone. So obviously we're gonna have all your socials, website, new book linked up, but uh, where do you want the listeners just being directed? Um, they're listening right now. Where, where, where should they check out the book? What do you want them to know about it? Yeah, the book is is about some of the things we talked about today. It's about reinvention. It's about loss of identity. It's about, you know, learning how to thrive and then, you know, how to survive and then thrive through chaos um, and then how to show up fully regardless of outcome time and time again. Um, how do we inspire the inner warrior in a way that is both kind and strong um, in the same way? So it's feasible, it's attainable, it's possible. Everyone's path looks different. Stop comparing. Um, it's all noise. The grass is not greener. You never know what's going on in between someone else's two ears. Um, so continue on your path and begin today. Paula Ono, can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.